so uh, let me start the, the sermon today with a true story. Let me tell you about an astronomer, Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Hugh Ross. When Hugh was a young boy, uh, his family was forced to relocate and move into a poorer neighborhood because Hugh's father, um, a friend of his uh, financial partner, business partner, uh, defrauded them, betrayed them, and bankrupted their business and fled to Brazil. And so their family was uh, left uh, in, in great ter- uh, you know, difficult circumstances, so to relocate into a, a worse place. And then the, the public school that uh, Hugh ended up having to go to that he was zoned for was, was not a good situation, and he experienced some bullying during this time at school. Hugh's parents knew there was something special, something a bit different about their son. And at age seven, he asked them a question. He wanted to know why stars were hot. And in those days, you went to the library to find the answers to stuff. So they took him to the library. He checked out five books on cosmology, took them home, read them all in one week. This began, then he basically gobbled up every book on physics and astronomy that he could. He would go back to the library. The maximum amount of books they let him check out each week were five. He'd check out five books, read them all week, take them back and get five new. Every year he would add and go in depth into a new layer of astronomy and cosmology. His, with his dad's help and saving up um, pop bottles, he was able to afford a telescope, or he built himself a telescope. At age 17, he started lecturing at the University of British Columbia to adult audiences. He was absolutely astonished and fascinated with the universe. He began to calculate the, 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 the probability of different things about how our universe works and began to peel back the layers of scientific knowledge and understanding of the mysteries of our universe. Now, somebody with such an, a high IQ like this, a very gifted individual, uh, also has some social challenges to them. And Hugh found it difficult to read relational cues and understand social interactions. And this created some challenges for him in socializing and there were some invisible barriers that he couldn't quite detect. And so he, he began to realize there were these problems, but he, he was a very well-mannered person, a very nice, very kind person, but had these social challenges to him. So he started to work very, very hard to try to relate to people. But as he got deeper and deeper in his study of astronomy and his study and understanding of the universe, it was all of this not scientific knowledge that led him to the conclusion and the understanding that the universe had a beginning. The universe, you, you can treat with mathematics and with all of the studies we've done on the measurement of the stars and how you see the expansion of the universe, you can trace it all back to a beginning point, that it wasn't that way, always. It has a beginning. And with his brilliant logical mind, he rationalized that there must be something that was before this beginning. What is that thing? There must be what's called, sometimes people call, a, call it a causal agent, a creator, an intelligent force behind this. 
And so he went on a search. He, went, he continued to study science and astronomy and cosmology, continued in those realms, fascinated by them. But he began a different search, a deeper spiritual search, looking for answers to this question. So he looked at, he read the, the big philosophers of history, but wasn't very satisfied with their answers about life. Then he reasoned to himself that if the religions of the world were man-made, then he would be able to detect human error within them just by reading them, just by looking at their own claims. If they had human error in them, then he would know they're not from a supernatural source. But if he could find something that was without error, then he could be confident that it had a different origin to it. And so he began reading the holy books of the world. He read the, the Hindu Vedas and he read the Buddhist commentaries and looked at the Quran and the uh, Zoroastrians as well, their writings. And he looked at the, the Book of Mormon and met all of them. He looked through all of them. And, and what he discovered from his understanding of cosmology was that they were all wrong. Their accounts of creation and the universe did not match with science. He said, this doesn't work. And then eventually, he picked up a Bible. And every day, for at least an hour at midnight, in secrecy, because if his family found out, he knew they wouldn't be pleased with it. It's from a non-religious household. And every night at midnight, for at least an hour, he would read the Bible. And he went from the first page to the last page, examined it back and forth, looking at it, and he did this for almost two years trying to understand, trying to figure out this point of view, this belief about reality and about life and this, the claims in Scripture. And after two years of doing this, he began to see that the Bible's worldview and what the Bible tells us about creation completely lined up with all of his knowledge and study of cosmology. The, the, the expansion of the universe, he saw that in Scripture. The pervasiveness of entropy, he saw that in Scripture. He saw that Scripture had predictive powers. That it, could not, it predicted certain scientific discoveries before they were uh, found by, by people. They were in the Bible and also historical predictions as well. And fascinated by this, he, based on this evidence, he became so convinced that it was true he wrote in the back of that Bible a commitment to Jesus, and he became a Christian, unbeknownst to his family. And it was seven years until he would meet another Christian. This happened by himself, examining the book of God. Seven years went by. He ended up going to, he was accepted into Caltech uh, for his post, uh, it was his postdoctoral uh, research studies into quasars and galaxies. His big brainiac accepted there. And his, one of his work colleagues that he had to share an office with was an astrophysicist by the name of uh, Ian Lockhart. And Ian was a very committed atheist. And he would come into work each day, come into research each day, and question Hugh about the Bible and about science. And he'd listen. And then on his coffee break, he would sit down with the other scientists. And Ian and these other scientists would laugh and mock and ridicule Hugh for his backwards beliefs, in their view, his backwards beliefs. This went on for 18 months, day after day, this questioning and ridiculing. 
And I guess in one sense it was a bit reminiscent of Hugh's experience in school. And the question remains, what would, what would Hugh do? Somebody socially challenged, but somebody also who has come to this conclusion and is steadfast in it, how would he respond to this kind of attitude and this kind of response? Well, let me pause the story there. We're going to get back to, we're going to, I'll give you the conclusion of it at the end of the sermon. Today we're starting week one of our series called Christmas in Chicago. Today's sermon is titled Glory, talking about glory, explain what, we, what I mean by that. Let me start with a prayer, and then we're going to, get in, we're going to read Psalm 8. Uh, Lord, we, just, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you you're with us. We thank you for Christmas time, amazing time of year. And I pray that uh, you would reveal to us your glory. And that we would see the impressiveness of the universe and creation, and that would cause us to worship you and know you and enjoy you all the more. And I pray for all those here today who don't know you, God, open their eyes that they would no longer be blind and that they would know the truth and the grace that you have that's only in you. I pray it in your name. Amen. Psalm 8, verses 1 through 5. This is written by King David. Back in the day, he writes this, O Lord, our Lord. Notice there, first Lord is all uppercase, second Lord is regular. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This is God's word. Now this psalm is written as a hymn for God's people to sing. It's supposed to inspire praise and worship and adoration in Christians and believers in, in the Bible. And uh, this uh, word Lord is used, it starts off here, uh, O Lord, our Lord. And that, that first use of the word Lord is all uppercase. Uh, uh, it's not like uh, God's not angry with us. He's not rage texting us uh, that it's all uppercase. Um, it's, the Bible translations will do this where in the original language, the original Hebrew, when the, the name Yahweh is used, the name of God, the name Yahweh, when that's used, a lot of English translations will render it Lord, but not just any Lord, they'll render it all uppercase Lord, like, almost like it's shouting at you, trying to tell you something really big, really important. And uh, this is from, uh, the name Yahweh comes from when Moses encountered the burning bush, and God spoke to him through the burning bush and sent him on a mission to redeem the Israelites from slavery, redeem the Hebrews from slavery. And Moses said, well, who are you? Who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am. Yahweh. That sound, the sound of that is Yahweh. Now, if you were to really say it in the original Hebrew, you'd have to hack up a lung probably to get it out. There's a lot of throat involved, I'm sure, in, in saying that, but I can't quite do it. But it's, uh, the sound is, I am, I am who I am. 
I am the I am. That's the name of God. And this is a unique name of God. No other ancient cultures were given this name of God, the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the self-existent God. There was nothing before him. I am who I am. I am self-existent. That's why David can write, majestic is your name. It's majestic. That means to be magisterial, to be sovereign. It means nobody else is above you. Nobody else has control over you. There's no other God. All other nations, all other people groups have their gods and have their idea of God. Even non-spiritual people today have a God. They have a Lord. Whatever you value most, whatever on the top of your hierarchy of values, whatever you place at the top, that's your Lord. That's what you bow down to and worship and prize the most. That's God to you. That's your Lord. And for Christians, for believers, we say our Lord is the Lord, is Yahweh, all caps. The self-existent, uncreated God who was before all time, before everything was made. Nothing to, he isn't dependent on anything else. It's, it's him all the way. That's, that's, that's it for us. And the, the mind-boggling thing that's revealed to us in God's word when Jesus came is that Jesus himself, I mean, the disciples worshipped him and Jewish people of that day, you don't worship something unless you, you think it's God. They worshipped him. But Jesus himself also said, I am. He said, I am. He claimed to be this all caps Lord, this Yahweh. That's an astonishing claim. And when, when, when David is saying, it doesn't just say majestic is your name. He says majestic is your name in all the earth, in the whole earth. Now, that was true in their time, in David's time, that the people of Israel were greatly known. The Hebrews were greatly known because uh, word had gone around that their God wanted to bust them out of slavery and destroyed the Egyptians to do it. And so the other nations were trembling in fear. And then David becomes king of Israel. And even Israel was even greater than during his son's reign, Solomon's reign as well. Israel kept growing in, ancient Israel kept growing in glory and honor. And, and the name of the Lord, Yahweh, was majestic in all the earth. Everyone knew the reputation of the Hebrews' God and how powerful he was. And what he had done to set them free was majestic. He's above all the gods. No other God has that, that power. The power that he displayed, no other God could have that power. But it's even more profound in the coming of Jesus. In Jesus claiming to be this Yahweh, how majestic is the name of Jesus? You know, a lot of people may not like Christians or may not like churches, and I get that. Christians and churches, we're annoying sometimes and we're stupid sometimes. A lot of times. It's sad, but it's the way it goes. We're fallen, broken, idiotic people sometimes. But it is the name of Jesus that is universally respected amongst all cultures, amongst all peoples. Isn't that true? Around the world, around the globe. How majestic is his name, the name of Jesus. The, Jesus is the fulfillment of this word here, this praise psalm, this hymn, this psalm of praise from David that David wrote. We sing the name Jesus, don't we? Christians, we love singing about Jesus. People come to church and like, man, these... These jolly Christians, they like to sing about Jesus a lot. This is strange. But people don't get it. They don't get how much we adore Jesus, how impressive, how much respect, how magisterial, sovereign we believe Jesus is, that he is 
this Yahweh God who has come to us in the flesh. And so we're crazy about him. So of course we're going to sing songs to him. If you love somebody, you, you're, you're, even if you've got a bad voice, you might sing them something from time to time. You're just going to do it because you can't help it. If you've got strong feelings towards someone, strange things come out of you sometimes when you've got strong feelings. You do odd things. You start behaving in strange ways because we adore the magisterial, the name of the Lord, the name of God. Oh, Lord, our Lord. He's our Lord. And it's said here that he set his glory above the heavens. Read that in verse 1, right? Verse 1 says that he set, how majestic is his name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, the Bible uses the, the, the name heavens in a few different ways. The, the heavens can be, during the daytime, you look up in the sky, the blue sky, and you say, it's the heavens. You can see the, the sun and the moon, that's the heavens, right? Or you, you, at the nighttime, you look up into the cosmos, and you see all the stars, and you say, that's the heavens, right? Uh, also, it can use heaven to mean, you know, the, the spiritual realm, right? That's where you go, you know, when you die or something, or that's, that's where God exists, right? The heaven can be used in, in different ways. When it says God has set his glory above the heavens, it's saying that God is beyond, higher than all those things, because other people groups used to worship the heavens, right? That's, I mean, Sunday is named, you know, all the days of the week are named after different gods, right? Sunday has its name because people used to worship the sun, Moon Day has its name. Monday is named after the God of the moon. People used to do this. In, in Genesis, in the first book of the Bible, the creation account that we're given downgrades the sun and the moon. It's fascinating. All the other ancient cultures, they worship the sun and the moon. They say, say yeah, we, th- those are gods. We worship those. We look to those things. We look to the heavens. And we worship those, those things. And in Genesis, when God creates the sun and the moon, it doesn't even use their proper names to describe them. It basically is like a throwaway line. It kind of downgrades them. It says, oh, he put the two great lights in the sky. Because the Bible wanted to be, and God wanted to be absolutely clear through his word. His glory is above the heavens. It's beyond the heavens. The heavens... They point to the glory of God. We, we're we're a, a race of stargazers. We're fascinated with the heavens. We're always looking to find our story in the sky, our story in the, the heavenly bodies. My life, what does my life mean? How do I put it all together? What, is there some big cosmic plan, the movement of the stars? We're looking at all these things, trying to figure it out. We've created telescopes to look, to stargaze. Right? We developed the fields of astronomy and cosmology, all these things. We measured the distances between stars and the speed of light, all these different things. We're so interested in stars, we even found invisible stars that you couldn't see forever. Black holes, right? It's estimated that there are over 200 billion trillion stars in the observable galaxy or the observable universe. The vastness of it, the grandness of it, the greatness of it points to a greater glory. God has put his glory, his glory is beyond even the glory of those things. There is a person behind those things. And when Jesus was born, it was a star that led them exactly to the point where he was born. God is not the universe. God is not the universe. He's ab- his glory is above the universe. We're a race of stargazers. We look at the stars. They're telling us a story. They're communicating to us. We're trying to figure out the story. We're trying to look into the cosmos and, and, and get the meaning of it. What's it all about? And it's speaking to us. You know, at Christmas time, we, we put lights everywhere, don't we? Like candles, Christmas tree lights, Victorian Narnian lamp lights, which I'm quite fond of that lamp. That was my idea. I'm happy with it. 
we put lights everywhere at the time, at time of uh, Christmas time because we're trying to increase the glory. We're trying to shine the light. Light is a symbol of truth. And as Christians, we're all about the light. E- a darkness is evil, right? We want to, you shine the light into the darkness to destroy the darkness. To whatever is dark and hidden in shadowy corners, whatever you can't tell people about is, you know it's wrong because you can't tell people about it. Because if you expose it to the light, you'd be ashamed of it. And so you hide, we hide the evil of our own hearts in the dark shadowy corners and we shine. And then the light comes in and shines in and we're, we're, we're ashamed. But the light comes in to set us free. And so we, we, we light the lights to spread truth, and, and, and the heavens are shining down the truth. The light's in, in the heavens, the sun and the moon and the stars, they're shining down, telling us about the truth of God, that there is one greater than all that exists in creation, beyond it all, who spoke it all into being. It's an amazing, amazing thing, but it's not just the glory that God displays, his glory that he displays through the heavens, it's, he displays it also on the lips of children. God displays his glory on the lips of children. And verse 2 puts it like this. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. Some translations say praise. You have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. So, of course, the stars shine the glory of God, but so do babies. They shine the glory of God. Um, you know, ba- babies, uh, babies are like stars, aren't they? People will stare at a newborn baby like it's a galaxy. I mean, they will, right? If you haven't had your own children or you never have your own children, it's hard, it's, it'd be impossible for you to understand what it's like exactly. Or if you, if you I actually think it would be similar, you know, it would be the same thing if you, if you adopt as well. Like just having this newborn baby, this is your baby, that, that there's, there's, there's a glory that shines from this, shines from the innocence and the beauty of this, this child. And uh, there's another way to read this. It could be talking about actual children, but also it could be, when it says out of the mouth of babies and infants, it could be a reference to God's people, the children of Israel. God's people today, God's, we're all his children. If we follow him and believe in him, that we're the ones given the light to shine, to speak the truth in the face of evil, to stop the enemy, to stop the avenger, to stop God's foes, Right? Where it says you have established strength from the mouth of babies, it is saying that. That's, that's one thing we do as God's children. We shine the light. We speak the truth. But, but also I think it does mean that God has ordained from the lips of children and from the activity of children that children, you know, they say funny things, don't they? Children say the most hilarious things sometimes. But they also say great things. Because you know, as, as adults, we, we kind of lose our curiosity. We lose our interest in, in creation. We stop asking big, the big questions of life. Little children have no problem looking at the greatness of the universe and having big thoughts, big grand thoughts about eternity and about God, wondering about spiritual things. And out of their mouths, they'll say the most incredible observations that shines light in the darkness. A couple of quotes here about children Henry Ward uh, Beecher says this, children are the hands by which we take hold of heaven. And then this next one, Paolo, he says, a child can teach an adult three things, to be happy for no reason, to always be curious, and to fight tirelessly for something. It's true, isn't it? I think if we, 
if we, as a, you know, as a human race, if we got to the point where we stopped having children and we found a way to perpetuate our own lives uh, uh, for, for an extended period of time, we, we didn't have children anymore, I think we'd just become more and more evil. Because by God's grace, now God has given us his revealed word, which has a high moral standard in it to live by. It tells us what is right and wrong, clearly revealed from heaven to us. Uh, but also in creation, a lot of moral boundaries but people who can't appeal to the Bible, where do people appeal to to draw their moral boundaries? Oftentimes it's to children. Well, they'll say, well, you can't do this. This is bad for children. This is toxic. This is dangerous. This is harmful to children. This is traumatic for children. We've got to protect the innocence and the beauty of children. So if you get rid of children or if you downgrade or hate children or despise children or pretend you know, that children don't matter, you lose the very creative mechanism that God has given the human race to constantly bring us back to what is pure and what is innocent and what is right. It's an intuitive feeling that parents have when they look in their, the, the, the face of their, their newborn child. There's, there's, a, there's a, a divine beauty that shines through. At least it's, it's there until they're two, and then when they turn two, they ruin your life forever. Which is, which is why we're dedicating these babies today. It's the only hope that parents have. <laughs> but uh, because there is such darkness in the world, they don't, children, when they, they don't ruin your life forever when they turn two. It's, they just ruin it for like 20 years or something. I don't know. No, no, that's another joke. That's another joke. My wife, yeah, okay. Uh, we love children. We had four children. We love children so much we had four children. So. Uh, but th- there is real darkness in, in the world, and we can't ignore that. We, we can't deny that. And the way that you overcome darkness is with light. It's with light. And, and, and there's, there's glory that comes from, 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 the, from the lips of children. They'll, they'll say the most curious things about, about the nature of reality that makes parents and, and adults realize, I've lost something magical about my own heart. I've forgotten who I am. I've forgotten the... the uh, that life is a story and that there's something magical about this life that I've forgotten and God has ordained it to come out of the mouths of children also out of his children his people to declare the light in the darkness he said it in the heavens the heavens they're shining down the stars shine down the truth that there is a creator but also in the magisterial name of Jesus the name of Jesus is glorious it shines telling us and showing us the specific way that we can know God, not just the general way, not just that there is a God, but who that God is and what that God has done. Let's look at verses three through five again. Psalm eight, David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, when we think about the greatness of, of the cosmos and the, the universe, when we think about it, it's so vast, so unimaginably. It, it's, it's enormous. It's, I was reading something the other day that, that talked about the, the location of the Earth in, in, in the galaxy and how we're in this special pocket that's actually shielded from radiation. That, that it's almost like there's this divine plan that only life could emerge here. If we were somebody else, you can't, organic life is like really hard to come by. It's like, it's surprising. It's, it's, it's unexpected 
It's humbling, but it's wonderful. In the vastness of the universe, God cares about you and about me. Who can fathom this, this idea? Who, how wonderful. You know, we're flying around a ball of fire with a third rock from the sun. I mean, just our solar system alone is nothing compared to what's out there. And then we're the third rock around this ball of fire. And then you and I, we're just the tiniest little speck on this rock. And God made you and delights in you and loves you. What a wonderful thought. What an incredible thought to have when we think about the vastness of it, that, it's, that God would prize us. And it says he made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. He made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. Heavenly beings, you know, there's a spiritual realm where God exists and he's got buddies and friends and things going on there we don't know about. And, you know, the Bible has different names for this. So, you know, there's cherubim, seraphim, spirits, angels. Uh, some people believe in interdimensional elves. I'm not sure about that. But uh, the heavenly beings are the host of heaven, the creatures, the intelligent creatures that are in the heavenly realms, and we've been made a little lower than them. And this is true in all depictions in Scripture and even just the way we, we tend to depict angels and spirits is that they're more powerful than us. They have more power than us. We've been made lower than them, but we're told in these verses that it is us who have been crowned with glory and honor, not them. They have not been crowned with glory and honor. We have been crowned with glory and honor. They were made by the great I am, but we have been made like the great I am. We have been made with the image of God imprinted upon us, which means there is divine brilliance and beauty in every human being, which is the perspective you need when you're dealing with your annoying neighbor or your annoying coworker, struggling with your spouse somehow, struggling in your relationship somehow. This is why the power of the Christian message of the truth of the Bible, you only get this truth. It comes from Genesis chapter 1 that we're made in the image of God. It is not a scientific discovery. It is a theological conviction and conclusion that we are made like God. Just like the moon reflects the light of the sun. We, we are not God, but we reflect his glory. We are the stars of God. Just like God put the stars in the heavens, but they're not the stars of God. We are the stars of God. We're the heirs of God. We are the, we'll have the inheritance of God's kingdom. We're called to rule and reign in God's kingdom with him. We're called to shine the light of his goodness, the light of righteousness. We're called to shine the light of peace, the light of love and the light of joy in the world, the light of justice and the light of grace, to shine the light of Christ in the world. Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. When you're in a relationship or you know somebody who's much greater than you, they have more power than you, they're smarter than you, they've accomplished more than you, they're more esteemed than you, but they treat you as an equal, that is the most valuing experience you could have. In our relationship with God, he's clearly the greater one, yet he relates to us as equals. How amazing is that? You cannot receive more personal validation and value than how God relates to you through Jesus. 
in, a, in an amazing cosmic plot twist. Psalm 8, it's revealed to us that Psalm 8, it is about us, but it's about something much more deep, much deeper than what we might just read on the surface. We, we, we understand something about this psalm, Psalm 8. It's what's called an Easter egg. It's a, it's a secret prophecy. It was predictive of something. And if you fast forward into the book of Hebrews later on in the Bible, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, after the life of Jesus, it reveals to us what Psalm 8 was all about, the deeper meaning to it. It says here, you know, in that verse 4, we read it, that the Son of Man, who is the Son of Man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. This is a reference to Jesus. This is what happens throughout the Bible. There are these secret Easter eggs, these references to Jesus. Jesus referred to himself as a son of man. It's one of his most favorite phrases that he had for himself. People are confused by that. They're like, wasn't he the son of God? Why do he call himself the son of man if he's the son of God? Well, back in the day, there was a guy called Daniel who had some gnarly visions. And he saw coming from heaven, he says, one who looked like a son of man. And it was mysterious. People couldn't figure out, what did Daniel mean? And he was a Messiah who was going to be a savior. The mystery of it is that this person is from heaven, so they appear to be divine, but they look like a man. Well, who is that, I wonder? And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, he refers to himself as a son of man, so that everybody would know that was the reference that from Daniel's revelation, from Daniel's vision saying there's a Savior, a Messiah from heaven who's going to come, who is the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying, I'm that Savior, but also when he says he's the Son of Man, Jesus is showing his humility. He's showing that he didn't seek equality with God, something to be grasped. He's not the kind of God that, like a Monty Python foot that just wants to squash us and harm us and destroy us, but he's a God who comes down and wants to relate to us like a brother, take on our flesh. It says he made him lower, made him lower than the, the heavenly beings. That's Jesus. That's, what is that? That's Christmas. That's the incarnation. Jesus was made lower than the heavenly beings. That would have been confusing for the angels. Be like, well, Jesus, you're God's son. You're divine, uncreated. But now you've been made lower than us as a man. This is God come to earth. God come to visit us. In the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 16, says this. I'll read it from here. So Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David. David wrote Psalm 8. He said, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. See, Jesus was in the lineage. He did come through as a descendant of David. He was born as a Jew. In, with the heritage all the way tracing back to even Abraham, the man of faith, th through this line, this, this plan that God had through the Israelites to, to reveal God to the world, to shine the light of the, God's truth to the world. And Jesus is born in that lineage. He is the descendant of David, but he also says, I am the root. That's what he means when he says, I am the, the great I am. I, he's not just a son of man or a descendant of David. He's the root of David. He's the, the one that made it all in the first place. Jesus, and he says, I'm the bright morning star. 
he's the morning star. He's the, the sun that rises on us each day. He is the resurrection that we hope in, that this world is heading towards decay. Entropy is a real thing. And only in the star of Jesus do we have hope that there is something eternal that goes beyond, above the heavens. So we don't just have the greatness of the universe and the stars out there to point to the grandness of God. We have the bright morning star, Jesus, who shows us the greatness of God. We don't just have the faces of children, babies and infants and the, the things out of their lips that point to the glory of God and the innocence and the beauty and the purity of God. We have it in a very specific baby, one baby, Jesus, who was born, born to die, to bear the weight of the world's sin, to take my sin, to take your sin. This is why Jesus came. What happened to our quirky friend and astronomer, Dr. Hugh Ross, with this attack on him? day after day for 18 months at work, being ridiculed for his faith and his belief in the Bible. Well, this friend or this colleague, Ian, showed up one day at work and he made an, an announcement. And he said, I can no longer ridicule Hugh. I can no longer ridicule the Bible or Christians. I can't do it anymore. Because last night, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And it was through the conversations over the months. It was the clear thinking and the, and the reasoning, the clear understanding, but it was the gracious approach. Hugh's heart to listen and to respond and to always be available. His graciousness that led Ian into faith, real faith in Jesus. Hugh also had another work colleague a biochemist who after studying the complexity of the human of, of the cell and also realizing that science has no explanation for how the first cell came together. If you didn't realize that, science has no answer for how the first cell was formed. It doesn't know. This biochemist also gave their life to Christ after realizing there's a design here. This is a machine that has been designed. Hugh has gone on to write. He's written 23 books talking about science and faith. He started an international ministry called Reasons to Believe. He travels the world speaking, trying to explain to people, show people how the book of nature and the book of scripture have a coherent and consistent message telling us about the creator of the universe. And when Hugh was a boy, when he started to think about the greatness of the universe and read all these books on astronomy and cosmology, when he started, and he started to talk about the greatness and lecture at such a young age about these things, what is that? That is God establishing strength, establishing praise from the lips of children to talk about his greatness, how great and how wonderful his creation is. Hugh was blessed to get married and he and his wife have two of their own children and their adult children now. And Hugh says that actually children have a strange attraction to him. Children are drawn to him. Maybe he's secretly Santa, I don't know. Could be. But I, I wonder if it's the, the fascination that he has with the world that God has made. That the childlike wonder and awe and the vastness of it that children 
perhaps sense in him and through him. It was also the morality of Christianity that drew him, attracted him to the faith that he saw the value of human life. He saw it nowhere else. He saw the value of animal life as well. And the teachings of the golden rule of loving your neighbor as yourself, compelling. But before he gave his life to Christ, as he was reading the scripture, he tried to live up to the moral standards of the Bible and he kept failing it time and again and felt crushed by it and realized he couldn't do it. And so the thing that actually pushed him over the edge to give his life to Christ was when he realized, he realized the true message of the Bible, the true message of Jesus, which is God coming in our likeness, coming as a human to visit planet Earth, living a perfect moral life, the life that we could not live. And then through his life, proving through his teachings and through his miracles, proving that he is not like anybody else, that he is God in the flesh, and then willingly sacrificing his life on our behalf on the cross to pay for our sin. That's the gospel message. That's what Hugh realized, and that's what pushed him over the edge, and he surrendered his life. And today we're going to surrender our life. If you don't believe, I want to invite you as we worship to surrender your life. If you do already believe, let's surrender our lives again to Jesus and all that he has done. And this Christmas season, let's remember this. Let's be mindful of the true message. There is no good work that we could ever do that could make us right with God. It is only by the good work of Jesus. To believe in Christ is to believe in Christ alone, which means there is nothing else that could save you. No other hope, no other narrative. Like Hugh Ross, who looked at all the other holy books and looked at the philosophers of history and concluded it's dissatisfying, it doesn't add up, it doesn't line up, but there is one who has come who makes it all make sense. It's only in Jesus we have that hope, the glory that he has given us.